0: Landscapes are complex adaptive systems. Everything in them is interacting pretty much with everything else in them. They're also site-specific. It matters where they're located. You can't just recreate this piece of forest forty miles away and expect it to come out identical. This is not something that you get from engineering or urban planning or architecture, and in fact, not from most of the sciences other than formal ecology, academic ecology.
1: Hi, everybody. This is episode 42 of the Get In My Garden podcast, and I'm Aaron Moskowitz. And you've been listening to a clip of Kim Sorvig, author of Sustainable Landscape Construction, A Guide to Green Building Outdoors. In this episode, he catches us up with what's going on in the industry and where things might be moving. This episode was recorded at the Honeymoon Brewery in Santa Fe, where we sampled their awesome alcoholic kombuchas while podcasting. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and leave positive reviews on iTunes if you like the show. Follow my adventures on Instagram at GetInMyGarden. Reach out to me there via direct message or on my website, getInMyGarden.com. I love hearing feedback and ideas from listeners, and I'm super grateful for those of you who have been listening as the show has developed. My name's Kim Sorbig.
0: I'm a research professor at uh, the University of New Mexico in the School of Architecture and Planning Landscape Architecture program. Uh, These things are almost always a big mouthful. Uh, Trying to answer the phone for the department is quite a trick. But anyway, so I wrote the first edition of Sustainable Landscape Construction in 2000. That's when it came out. With a co author who is a good friend and an editor. We redid it in 2007 and I did it again, the third edition by myself in 2017. I saw that. So, okay. writing the same book three times, you know, you have to wonder about somebody's sanity.
1: <laughs> well, I'm guessing that a lot has changed or you wouldn't have done it. So, I'm really interested in how things have changed in the last 20 years and how that relates to permaculture. But I do view it kind of as the lens that like normal people would look through Mm -hmm. to look at their yard rather than deep into permaculture. I think it's more approachable for normal people.
0: Yeah, permaculture is quite specialized and it's focused in the direction of agriculture. That's not doing it justice by any stretch of the imagination. But one of the first decisions that we made about the first edition of the book was that we were not going to cover permaculture because the landscape industry probably wouldn't pay attention Mm -hmm. and because it was already really well covered even back then, you know, Bill Mollison's book was out, that huge fat thing that you get from Australia. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We just didn't see any point in duplicating that. The focus of our book was really about trying to make people understand that just because something is green and outdoors doesn't mean it's green in the sustainable sense. And that sounds really self-evident to a lot of people now, but back then it was not something that the industry particularly had considered. I think what really shows the change maybe the best is that we struggled with the first edition to find a 100 firms that were actually seriously committed to doing something ecological, sustainable, regenerative, whatever you called it, Mm -hmm. um, as a focus of their professional work. By the second edition, there were so many that we couldn't include everybody. By the third edition, it was pretty much impossible to count how many there were. Amazing. And we were also starting to get the usual copycat, jump on the bandwagon, pseudo stuff Uh which in some ways is better than nothing even a little bit of better sustainable or less damaging design I think we have to include it Uh we're going to run up against a really wicked problem which is that to do the things that we want to do for sustainability requires lots of mechanical energy, Mm -hmm. at least
1: right now. Can you give an example of that?
0: Well, if you want to improve the soil for a landscape or even for agriculture, you're likely to be bringing something in by the truckload, manure or compost or whatever. And even if that is from... Across a small city, that's a serious energy investment. Right now, it's a matter of economics, but it looks very possible that at some point there will be rationing.
1: So we'd if we ran out of topsoil or something, mm-hmm. there will only be certain areas that are able to have beautiful gardens. Yeah, you know, for as part of landscaping, but where there are a lot of people talking about mycology and how it could potentially create new soil and degrade garbage and whatnot,
0: but it takes a long time. It does, and it takes resources. At this point, many of the sources are centralized or isolated or both. If you want mycological stuff, you're probably getting it from a very few companies, and they can't be everywhere. And (laughs) so that adds to the reliance on the old system to get the new stuff.
1: So you're literally just referring to getting organic matter into your yard or... Well, that's one example. But
0: I've always said that the saddest thing I know about urban development is that we had this huge boom in the 60s and 70s, sort of into the 80s, with the world's ugliest buildings, you know, most alienating, plain, brutal, whatever you want to call that architecture. By the time we realized our mistake, we can't afford to blow the damn things up. And even if we do, then we'd have to cart off the rubble. (laughs) And so it does get to be a wicked problem. But the solutions that we're going to come up with are going to be local. Mm -hmm. And the main theme or one of the main themes of the book is that a landscape perspective is something that's missing even in a lot of green building. The difference between a building that's a very green machine and does everything really efficiently but it's sited on a piece of farmland. Uh-huh. and one that's cited properly but is somewhat less energy efficient is actually a really considerable difference and, and a very important one. So where are we now? Well, landscape architecture and landscaping have always been the third poor cousin in the construction industry. The way things are built now, landscaping is the very last thing you do on a project before you get your certificate of occupancy. So by that point, the project is over budget and delayed, and the clients are champing at the bit. And so it gets very little funding and attention. And it really is, there are an awful lot of architects and engineers that look down their noses at landscape architects, which in the past has been somewhat legitimate because so much of what landscape architecture has been about is decorative horticulture. And that's partly what Bill, my co-author, and I set out to change, was to give people some practical ways of looking at the landscape and seeing, yeah, we can actually do something here to control rainfall and infiltration rather than have it run off and erode the creek into the next county and we have a lot of different techniques and things that can be used in that sort of way there had been quite a few books before that on kind of the theory why we should Mm -hmm. design with nature that's probably the most famous book on it is called design with nature Ian McHarg was one of my teachers and got to be a friend and colleague. And it's 50 years since that book came out. We're still facing many of the same problems because there's resistance to the idea.
1: Is it because of the culture? I keep thinking back to what it's like for the majority of people in the country who have a house, I guess, with a small yard, that they didn't give it any thought until one day they did, and then, like, where do they start? Well, uh,
0: that is a general question about sustainable construction, many people have tried to estimate how much more it costs to do a sustainable building than a non-sustainable one. The people who are against it argue it costs you 10 to 15% more, and the people who are for it say it doesn't cost any more than about 2% differential. Well, that's not that much, really. No, (laughs) No, it isn't. Even even 15% isn't bad, considering what you get out of it over the lifespan. So you have to invest time and research sources, including money, unless you can do it all yourself, Mm -hmm. up front to get the kind of return you can from a a sustainable design. And that's true of landscape as well as anything else.
1: So what does that all include? I mean, obviously, go into lots of detail, or you could just give a little overview. So people, I know a lot of people are interested in soil, or they might be faced with a situation that requires them to focus on the soil because they can't grow anything otherwise. Um, But like, what else is encompassed in that water management, you said, and then how much else.
0: Well, we had chapters on soil, water, plantings and the use of live planting for engineering purposes, sourcing materials, which is another issue, especially for people who are professional and are ordering things by the, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons for a big project. Pollution and toxicity issues that affect landscape directly. That was always the focus. For a homeowner A lot of those things may not come into play very much and they may be too complicated to deal with but the soil improvement and the attitude change that is required to do good water management Mm -hmm. which of course is a cycle with soil management those are things that anybody can can master pretty easily many of the technical things about water management are really really simple french drain oh yeah basically just a hole in the ground with a bunch of gravel in it preferably enclosed in filter fabric Mm -hmm. which means it can take a lot of water quickly in a storm and then radiate it out usefully into the soil.
1: Does your work get into the microbes? Because I've had people talk about French drains and how it kind of fosters indigenous microbes within the soil area.
0: We didn't go into a ton of detail with that. We talked about composting And compost tea, and some of the programs, like there's one called Soils for Salmon up in Seattle. Oh, cool. That they realized that the runoff and soil erosion and pollutant load in the runoff and so on from the landscape of Seattle was actually causing many problems in the salmon habitat. In the Bay Area, they've studied it a little bit more, I think. They claim that the biggest pollution problem in that whole region is runoff from garden pesticides, bigger than any other single problem. So it's it's not small. But, of course, it's only possible to deal with it as an aggregate of small properties, and that's the most difficult thing you can possibly do
1: yeah here in santa fe i think people are forward thinking about all that in general but then all it takes is one of your neighbors if for instance you're beekeeping to mess your entire yard up you know it's going to go into everybody's yard
0: it's the same problem that organic farmers have that's one of the main issues with anything to do with landscape is, that by definition, it's not an enclosed system unless you get to the planetary s- scale where it, of course, is. If you only look at the site that you're professionally or personally responsible for, you're going to miss all the important things. Mm-hmm. The drainage does not start and finish on your property, most likely, you know, unless you're Ted Turner or somebody. <laughs> got... Bazillions of acres in one property. Wildlife movements are going to go across your property and maybe temporarily stay there. Soil issues can migrate despite it looking pretty solid and immovable. Mm-hmm. So Almost any issue with the landscape is a contextual one. Even if people aren't oppositional, it's created this piecemeal thinking that this is my property and what I do here does not have to coordinate with anything else, even if it's benign. A patchwork of benign little gardens can add up to something that's pretty toxic to a large environment, depending on the
1: type of plants that are brought in. How are we evolving? Are we changing? Because if the industry is expanding so much, which you said it is, then what will that look like?
0: RFP is the request for proposal that I'm hearing about and seeing and clients and others who are actually responsible for funding this kind of construction seem to be asking for sustainability to be considered in lots and lots of projects, municipal ones and governmental ones particularly, despite everybody's idea that the government is just this big drag on the world they're actually well ahead in requiring things to meet sustainable standards and to avoid some kinds of materials that are are not good to have in the landscape and so on. It seems to me that the demand for these kind of things has made a serious change. When we wrote our first edition in, in 2000, a lot of people would require an explanation of what it was we were writing about. And anymore, there are quite a number of competing books that are taking the same topic. Mm -hmm. There's one really good one that's gone off specifically on materials. And she's done a huge job of detailing way more than I had time or space to do. And I just think a lot of people have become much more aware. Our book was intended for business practitioners of landscape construction, maintenance, or design. So quite a few of the techniques in there are not something that your average homeowner is ever going to have the opportunity to do. Gotcha. But many of them can be scaled down or the concept can be taken and used on a small scale. And of course, there are one of the things we had to confront was that the you had two options you could write a a recipe book basically and be absolutely sure that it would only work for one region or ecosystem or you could ignore a lot of the specifics which are actually quite important and give people the principles so that they could then go and look for local methods of implementing them. And that, obviously, is the tack we decided to take. I've heard from a lot of readers that they really appreciated that. We actually called our chapters principles, which is how they were organized. And that's a big contrast to the way that construction books for design schools have always been written. They're treated as value neutral. It doesn't matter whether your retaining wall is good, bad, or indifferent for the soil behind it. Here's how to build the thing. And it doesn't matter whether the materials that you're proposing to use for your you know, your paving are good, bad, or indifferent. Just this is how you do it. It's a strictly technical approach. We decided very early on that the thing that was going to distinguish our work was that it was value-driven. Uh-huh. That there would be hardly a page where we wouldn't at least be implying people should be doing these things this way because this, this, and this is not a good idea. Makes sense. That was really different, and I think that's changed a lot of people's perception of landscape work.
1: I really like that. So if you had to distill it to a philosophy that you could, you know, tell someone in an elevator, what would it be?
0: I could boil it down to maybe five or six things that I think are the most important techniques that we ought to be convincing people to do. Some of this I've changed since rewriting the third edition. In some ways, I'm getting a bit more radical. The book advocates for using native plants not absolutely exclusive because many people get to be you know really stuck up about it you know Uh there's only one way and you've got to do it just that way but i don't see any reason not to use non-native plants for accents and special effects and so on but by and large we need to be using native ones partly because of how they're sourced, partly because of how they're maintained, and so on. So that's a big one. There have been quite a few people who have suggested that with climate change in the offing, we need to green things up with anything we can find. And it doesn't matter if it's native, invasive, or not. And I don't quite go that far, because the invasive ones are really problematic. But, for instance, all of the Siberian elms that we have here in Santa Fe, They're ugly trees, they're short-lived, they're definitely non-native, and yet where maybe 20 or 30 years ago I would have said we should cut them all down and replace them, or start replacements and then cut them down sequentially, by now I'm saying we can't afford to lose any photosynthesis process or surface anywhere
1: i had someone on the podcast talking about his regenerative landscaping Mm. and he was positive on them too he said that you know it gives a certain amount of shade where you need it yeah they grow fast and they're there so yeah
0: well and you don't have to spend fossil fuels and money and chemicals and so on bringing them from someplace i mean most of the kmart plants come out of ohio even out here, and worse yet, they're not adapted to here. So mm-hmm. they bring all this stuff out, and it all croaks either at Kmart, and I don't want to pick on them. You know, uh, home Depot's the same way. Whatever garden center you go to, unless they're like plants of the Southwest,
1: and they're laden with all sorts of chemicals that yeah. are just going to go right, right. in here. So they they soil.
0: get all shriveled up, and people pay money for them and take them home, and they die. You know, that's a really good use of energy. I don't think so adapting to the idea that we're not going to know anymore what grows where the all bets are off with that to me says that we've got to become a little more broad-minded about what we will and won't plant and what the neighborhood association will allow and that we probably need to be moving even further away from the idea of a lawn with little separate shrubs growing on it starting to think about unless you have a really bad problem with some kind of noxious weed just letting whatever grows there grow because it will increase the biomass and the ongoing photosynthesis water retention Soil formation, all of those things come from plant cover. And, of course, it's a nice cycle as well. The better the soil gets, the better the water retention. All those kind of things build on one another. So I guess my other hobby horse, it's amazing how many, like, garden clubs I've gone to and ended up talking about sewage.
1: Sewage. I well, was, that's actually, it came to mind when you were first talking about mm-hmm. running out of the resources to fill up our yards with good topsoil so yeah. that seems like the most obvious
0: next step pretty recent that we've had the kind of sewage treatment plant that we now have and they were not very good to begin with for many of those it's been processed it until it doesn't smell and dump it in the river the river is not where you need this stuff it needs to be back in the land where it is a huge resource mm-hmm. so it's begins to seem to me like one of the emergency measures we should probably be thinking about with climate change is to retrofit composting toilets or something equivalent everywhere. That seems so perfect. Quit using water for them. There are some alternatives the constructed wetlands that process sewage, but they really to me aren't appropriate in the desert southwest Mm -hmm. they might be appropriate in in
1: other wetter regions it seems like such an obvious i mean that's like perfect for our gardens yeah well it wouldn't take too much as long as we
0: are importing food which is a huge issue that's outside of landscape architecture as such but I forget what they say the average food miles for a particular American food is, but it's several thousand miles in many cases. You know, things being imported from Argentina and France and so on, and they get flown or trucked here hundreds and thousands of miles away. Well, if we're going to do that, we'd better get... A good return on that energy investment and instead we're flushing it down the toilet so you know to, not to be too gross about it but anything we eat we are a perfect processing machine to turn it into soil nutrients and instead of making use of that mostly because of social squeamishness uh, mm-hmm. there's a certain disease control aspect to it as
1: well but we are completely Destroying that material. So if it's true that all these things will get way more expensive uh, Water and you know any sort of landscaping Then maybe there will be an economic solution already that makes that just an obvious answer and then people won't have to get on board necessarily because it's just such an obvious economic choice.
0: Yeah, that's certainly one scenario but When you think of the environmental problems in the third world, so-called, many of those are born out of economic desperation, and they're really bad for the environment because there isn't any other choice where every stick of firewood that can possibly be found is completely cleared because they don't have access to any other technology and they need to cook. So if that scenario is going to play out, we've got to have some people who are doing advanced thinking and investing and trying to position some of these solutions in a way that they will become something that people just gravitate toward and that you don't have to be a huge greeny environmentalist activist to think about it at all. And I think there are a lot of people that are working on that. That's been one of the mistakes with the environmental movement from my generation is that we made the classic assumption that we had a great idea and if we just said it, it would take over the world. And of course that's not how it works. You really do have to get out and convince and persuade and sell and do all of those things and overcome opposition without beating it down in a way that is just gonna spring back up when you leave. That's my Aikido teacher talking there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> if you beat somebody down, he's gonna come back with his brother in a two by four. Yeah. And both the environment and The public trying to figure out what to do about the environment are very much subject to that principle. And we kind of went after people with a big stick about environmental things and made people feel pretty stupid about things that they grew up thinking were perfectly honorable ways to deal with the world.
1: So you're saying that the... Seventies environmentalism has totally backfired. Well, I wouldn't say
0: totally by any stretch. If it if it wasn't for people like McCard and all of the other people that founded environmental groups and got it into universities and so on, we wouldn't be having that second, third generation effect. You know, that that's a normal way that ideas propagate, I guess you could call it. Uh-huh. So, no, I wouldn't say that the 70s failed, but they've created an antagonism to some degree because of the way they presented the ideas. I mean, for those of us who believe in them, treating the environment with respect is so self-evident that we don't think about people who don't see it that way at first. Mm -hmm who've never thought of it that way. And we spring it on them as a whole complete idea and are very surprised when they get annoyed. One of the things that's encouraging to me is seeing that there's a current generation of activists, pretty young, most of them, and they don't get much credit from the old folks. And they may not be getting as much publicity as they deserve either. But I think they've got some better attitudes, that they've finally realized that this is a life and death fight, but that doesn't mean we have to come out swinging exactly, to mix my metaphors. The more important it is, the more gentle you have to be about making sure you persuade people and they're all on the same boat and going in the same direction. The more harshly you present your ideas out of panic and desperation to move, the more resistance you end up with.
1: That is such a great point. I just think that's so important for people to hear that right now people are completely divided mm-hmm. for many different things and reasons, and their they're, they're, just is getting worse and worse. So, I yeah. mean, whether we're talking about the environment or anything, I think people should hear that. And there's a lot of people who are wanting to create businesses mm-hmm. that are completely focused on their ecological purpose. Yeah. Right. So, I think that's part of what I'm talking about as some economic solutions, new economies are being created so that the existing economies that empower things that are very toxic, they're kind of falling apart or they're gonna only exist in a diminishing way alongside things that are much more popular. Because social media is just so different. There's all sorts of new tribes kind of sprouting up. Yeah of people who are really into certain things like the mycology thing is growing so quickly mm. so there's new products that are you know they're creating leather that's just like cow leather but it's of course it's really good for the environment mm. and it's also restoring you know t- taking toxins a lot of the chemicals out of the soil i guess it can't deal with heavy metals but it can still consolidate the heavy metals into one s- area but well, one of the things
0: that has made me both hopeful and also my evil twin sort of yeah. giggles at it a bit is is that you know we've been advocating for solar power and efficient lighting and stuff like that for a very 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 long time and you know, it's kind of been a fad. And yet recently, the economics of solar have made it a bigger industry for new job creation than the oil and gas industry, than the coal industry put together. The cost of electricity generated from PV panels is now down and competitive with any other form of generation, including the great big polluting coal plants. I think this is why the utilities and the drillers are having such con- They're just losing their minds because they've always tried to present themselves as the economic alternative. Renewables and what we used to call alternative, as if it's kind of a freak show, those are actually taking over the economic strong position.
1: That's so good. So landscape lighting, how does that play into the environmental factors? I'm not sure of the
0: current statistics exactly, but at one point, landscape lighting was considered to be the fastest growing sector of the lighting industry, and a lot of it was being used very inefficiently and there's the parallel concern about its effect on animals on people's uh, circadian rhythms sleep cycles the whole thing so in the same way as we talked about irrigation which in the first edition was a big villain really for the environmental discussion of of landscape work lighting was potentially a place where there was a lot of waste and much of it because people hadn't really thought it through very well. It was kind of a secondary spin-off from important types of lighting. You know, again, the landscape idea being kind of secondary so often. It has the potential for some really serious impacts in energy usage and in artificial night lighting. What LEDs potentially allow you to do, if the designers get with the program, is lighting designers outdoors have always tried to have the Maxim see the light not the light fixture Mm -hmm. well these things are so tiny that you can have a light fixture it's literally possible to have a watch battery and an LED smooshed together some way that you glue to the trunk of a tree so that there's light coming from behind the tree and and just those few branches are picked out. It's a complicated way to do lighting in any volume, but the amount of creativity that's come out of the availability of LEDs is just phenomenal. So cool. Some of it is allowing us to do things that simply couldn't be done. It's very easy to make LED lighting that can change color seasonally. They've had a program with sea turtles in Florida who are really affected by onshore lighting. New hatchlings head for the ocean, which is the brightest, most reflective area around and that's how they find their way back to their environment but when people put lights on shore they're much brighter than the reflection off the ocean and all the little turtles run across the highway and get smushed so one of the main programs that they've had for that is to sell I think even require in some places red bulbs for the light fixers that are visible from the from the shore theoretically with LEDs if you can imagine an animal that was sensitive to red light just after it was hatch and green light five hours later, you could do that with a single LED fixture pretty easily, Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't cost you an arm and a leg to build that capability in. So, there are some pretty serious uses like that for LEDs that are one of those things I was saying. A new technology can let you do old things easier. The real value of a new technology is when it allows you to do something that you couldn't do before, and when that is a good thing to be doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Sounds like LEDs.
0: They're a big deal, and there's another technology called OLEDs, Uh
1: organic LEDs that are sheets of light-generating material. So as you mentioned, the animals are responding to different colors. So what about insects and microbes? You know, there could be light solutions within our own gardens.
0: Last I've heard about that, there's not much research at that scale. But there's a very good book called The Ecological Consequences of Artificial Night Lighting boring Ooh. title, but it's really very good.
1: I'm sure there's going to be many geeky listeners who are going to get that book.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very well-researched book. It's chapters about different things like migratory birds, and there isn't much, as I recall, on human interactions with night lighting, but there's some really good research out there. The one place that's weakest in the book, and it's not through the author's fault, it's for lack of Research. We don't know what the effect of artificial light on trees or plants is, really. Part of that is because to study the effects on a mature tree is really, really, really difficult. You can't just pick the thing up in a pot and put it under a light and have an exact duplicate control that's not under a light and figure things out. But there have been some very ingenious ways recently of basically combining big data, um, with GPS municipal utility maps of where their street lights are and when they were maintained satellite photos that can show you the exact amount of lumens for every single one of those lights. This is an Israeli study. They got permission from a bunch of women who lived in the area they were studying to correlate the rates of breast cancer with those lighting statistics and they found a very definite correlation that it was way up. There are quite a lot of children who have never really seen the night sky. They live in the denser parts of cities. The glow from the city completely blocks it out. They've never, ever seen a star. I mean, how, crazy. how bizarre is that? Really, if I could get one idea across to people, you have to learn to think in terms of the whole system and all of the spatial and biological and geological components of that system and then try to work your technology to be similar. And people are trying. There's a lot of movement in that direction. I'm certainly not a prophet alone in the wilderness about it anymore. What does it actually mean to consider something sustainable? It's not an easy answer and you need to think carefully and deeply about it because if you can't define what sustainable means in a really careful way. You leave yourself wide open to all sorts of criticism that isn't really deserved necessarily.
1: Well, I think it's a good message that even if you don't achieve the exact outcomes that you want, that you're thinking about it and you're starting to, you know, plan everything that you want, you know, because then we can move in the right direction.
0: Yeah, if we set our goal to be a healthy environment, we don't even know what that means absolutely, but we can always keep moving towards it and course correcting as long as it doesn't go too far over the, uh, you know, 450 parts per million. But assuming that we aren't lining up for that disaster, environmental health ought to be like a North Star. You're not actually going there. If you did, you'd fry. But... It's one of the things that can help you make the decision of whether you attack this way or tack that way in your little boat. And I think that that's a critical understanding about what we're actually up to here. Sounds like you just described your philosophy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and leave positive reviews on iTunes if you like the show. Follow my adventures on Instagram at GetInMyGarden. Reach out to me via direct message on Instagram or on my website getinmygarden.com. I love hearing feedback and ideas from listeners and I'm super grateful for those of you who have been listening as the show has developed. We have new episodes this month about foraging, about algae, mushrooms and much more. Stay tuned.